Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. This is a space where we talk about what it means to awaken hope and empower change. Listen, for over a decade, Em and I have been fostering relationships with men and women who've been impacted by the commercial sex industry. And it's through those relationships that Jesus Said Love was born. We figured it was time to talk about what this ministry has taught us and is still teaching us along the way. I promise it's gonna be a place of conversation and story. And we hope you learn something new. Maybe you see something in a new way. Fun fact, you're gonna hear music because Brett and I are musicians. Yep. We can't just talk, nope. we gotta sing and play too. We do. Here's the deal guys. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, that you'll tap into your own story and that you'll be encouraged to live and love well like Jesus. Hello. Emily Mills. Hey, Brett Mills. How are you doing today? Good. I'm doing awesome. Been a busy day. It has been a busy day and it started early. And you know what was even cool is like our day yesterday. We were like in Tyler talking about demand Mm -hmm. and meeting with some really cool people and some people of influence. And you know what I've what I learned when I I mean I was sitting yesterday next to like one of the most powerful men in the United States Congress. And you know mm. what I noticed about him? He's a person. He's just a dude. <laughs> right. He's just a guy. He had bad shoes on. <laughs> I'm like, and he's wearing his United States Congress pin. And he's just a guy. Like, totally. I'm a guy. And I absolutely loved it. And I'll tell you this. One thing I loved about him, he wasn't too important to not stay till the last person who wanted to talk to him. That's very was true. There. I did notice that. I mean, that that is what you would hope to that people who are in um, government or any kind of public service would be about connecting with people who are concerned about issues. And and I just I always appreciate that. Whether you're a city council person, a mayor, a governor, a senator, congressman, represent right. whatever you are, judge, um, yeah, it, it just means so much to connect with people. And the thing is, is it's not like I he was trying to get a vote because I can't vote for him. Sure, He's not exactly. in my area. So I was just Really thought that was neat. So yeah, if, cool. you're, if you ever wonder what it's like to meet those people, guess what? They're just people, and that includes the, even the guys at the top. Mm-hmm. So, which is makes me excited about what we're going to talk about today mm-hmm. and who we're going to talk to. Yeah, so we're excited to bring you guys into a conversation that we had with an, an old friend um, who is doing incredible work with his own organization. His name is Jeremy Courtney, and he is the co-founder of Preemptive Love Coalition. Um, They unmake violence, and they do that by going to the places that most people would not think to go, like not Iraq, but (laughs) Iraq. (laughs) Iraq. I mean, this conversation is coming in hot from Iraq. Yeah, and... I'm so glad he, you will hear, calls me out on my East Texas upbringing and my strong Texas accent. Well, don't beat yourself up. He felt at home. He's from Texas. Oh, totally. And was totally in on that. I'm but. just laughing. Public service. Let's just frame it up. Iraq. That's how Iraq. we say it. That's how we say it. That's how I need to say it now. It's, and it's Iraq. We're all and learning it's and nuclear, growing. nuclear. It's not nuclear. <laughs> Come on, George W. So, yeah, it's a great conversation, um, just not only about the work of preemptive love, but I really felt like Jeremy got very personal with us about what this, what this work has taught him. And, and I think for us, we relate to it as you listeners have listened to our journey and Jesus said love. I mean, that's one of the reasons we wanted to do the podcast was to talk about our own perspective and how, how we've grown and how we are changing. Um, and so he just, he offers us real vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, not that vulnerability isn't real, but, uh, just an authentic, uh, vulnerable story of, of where he's grown. He also has a book coming out. So you'll hear more about that. Without further ado, Jeremy Courtney. Well, friends, we are joined with Jeremy Courtney all the way from Iraq. He is with uh, Preemptive Love Coalition. He's not just with Preemptive Love, but he is the co-founder of Preemptive Love, an organization that seeks to unmake violence. This is a real privilege because um, we have known Jeremy for 
quite some time just through similar ministry circles. And um, it's it's been over a decade <laughs> that Easily. we've that um, we've been following just the growth and the beauty and the goodness and the light that is coming out of preemptive love and, yeah, making our world a better place. So joining us all the way from Iraq is Jeremy Courtney. Hey, guys. It's good to hear you say Iraq. You sound like home when you say Iraq <laughs> the way you do. That feels really nice. Well, that may be the George W. Bush pronunciation oh, of it. Can, Lord. You, can you can you tell us how it's pronounced there? Uh, we say Iraq, but no one knows if I'm talking about a stone, you know, <laughs> that I found on the sidewalk when I come back to Texas and talk about living in Iraq. So Iraq. it just sounds good to hear Iraq. Hey, well, what? What? Um, can you tell us what city you're coming from? What? What area? Yes. Yeah. So I'm north of Baghdad right now in an area called Sulaymaniyah. Is there Starbucks there? <laughs> Man, come on. We yeah. don't have Starbucks. We've got there. There's an Italian uh, coffee chain here. That's kind of our next best thing. We we do all right. You know, I bring in. I bring in coffee from, from the outside world when I do my travels, so we do okay <laughs> by, by the coffee. I love it. Well, man, thanks for being here. I know it's a big deal for us, and we're honored to have you and excited to catch up. And like Emily said, we've, we've known each other a pretty long time, and I remember myself when, when you like left Waco to go to Turkey, when you spent time doing work in Turkey, and then the next thing I know, you're heading to Iraq. Uh, Iraq. Let's we'll just call there it Iraq. Go. Hey, you it, nailed it. it. Iraq. You nailed it. And man, you you have you're doing it. You were in the you were in the thick of it when the thick was really happening. So I mean, how do you go from Turkey to Iraq? Um man, long long story and I guess it just kind of depends on where where we want to start. I guess in some ways it's important to start back at the beginning, which is September 11th in some ways is the beginning for me. Mm. It's uh, shortly after mm. Jessica and I got married, shortly after graduating from college, then the world falls apart. You know, the, the security of the United States preeminent place in the world that I was supposed to be entering into in this newly graduated, newly married adulthood just gets shot through, just pierced through, you know, with, with the terror attacks on 9-11. And I guess a lot of friends, cousins, uh, counterparts, neighbors, you know, they're signing up left and right, it feels like, to go into the wars, the war on terror, as it was called, the, the wars in Afghanistan, and then subsequently the war in Iraq. And I guess I really, um, I thought I was so drastically different from... From that, I, I fancied myself as being, you know, completely other, I guess, than those jarheads that went out with guns to kill <laughs> Muslims. I was much more evolved. Um, <laughs> I was, I was, I was much more sophisticated than that. So, <clears throat> I enlisted in the missionary mm. effort post 9/11, and I. I didn't really know it or have eyes for it at the time because I guess where we came from, it didn't feel like there were a lot of us signing up in that way. Mm -hmm. It felt like there were more people signing up for the, the militaristic side of things than the missionary side of things. But fast forward a couple of years after um, you know doing this missionary thing in Turkey, and I had a profound spiritual awakening, a, a mom momentous and kind of a momentary experience that just, I, I literally saw the light and everything changed. Mm. Mm. And that kind of catapulted us into this next season of life where I, I essentially realized, no, what I did here was I signed up to join the war on terror just like everyone else. Mm -hmm. I mean, some guys grabbed a gun and some of us grabbed a Bible, yeah. but at the end of the day, we were, I, I was, I'll just speak for myself, I was basically about trying to destroy Islam. I was, I was basically about trying to wipe Muslims off the face of the earth. And I didn't necessarily want them all to die, but I didn't really want them to live mm. as Muslims, full stop, you know? And I had to come to grips with my own conquering, domineering 
war-like worldview. And um, when I did, I was able to release it, that, that see the light kind of moment transformed me Literally, in, a, in an instant, I was transformed. And uh, going on in Turkey with the life that we had set out to establish in Turkey just wasn't going to work anymore. We, mm-hmm. we needed a new way. We needed a new place. We needed to turn over a new leaf. So um, that's kind of the backdrop that launched us into our neighboring country, which was Iraq, which was in the middle of the throes of you know, this, this civil war that was just completely going out of control after the U.S. had invaded Hmm. I have a question about that because there was an awakening on our end with Jesus said love when we thought, you know, all the strippers needed to be saved and we're in the strip clubs in Texas and we're realizing God's already at work. We're not bringing God to these places. Like, in fact, God is already at work. But my question is, were you already engaged and did you already have friends who were Muslim friends and you're already living among them. And so that spiritual awakening that happens is there's kind of a softened ground because now the, the Muslim enemy for lack of better terms now has a face and now has friendship behind it. Um, or did the spiritual awakening happen first and then you were able to love in a very, um, more holistic kind of way? Yeah, it was the it was the relationships first. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, we moved into Turkey into a neighborhood full of Afghans and Uyghur exiles, some of whom had fled our war in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. some of whom had fled, you know, kind of the decades previous war or wars. And they were in Turkey. Some of them were, you know, we, we would come to find out that there were Al-Qaeda sleeper cells in our neighborhood. There were suicide bombers in our neighborhood. But they were, you know, in general, our neighborhood people were our friends, mm-hmm. whether they were Turks or Uyghurs or, or Afghans or whether they were, quote unquote, good guys or bad guys. We were moving in and among them mm-hmm. in their restaurants, in their homes, um, having tea together. And... Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, Islam and Muslims, they ceased to be the bad guys on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they became more fully orbed, complex, nuanced people, mm-hmm. as they are. <laughs> uh, and I, I, guess, I guess we just had to reckon with the fact that we had been sort of tilting at windmills. We had been fighting and trying to uh, destroy a caricature mm. in a way, and and once the caricature caricature proved to not hold water, uh, some of the other ideologies and theologies and dogma mm. and ego mm-hmm. stuff that was attached to that was able to be released as well. Mm. That is so fascinating to me because I'm 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 even thinking of the parallels, mm-hmm. you know, for on our end of things, mm-hmm. there there are stigmas and dogmas attached to those in the sex industry. And it, For you know, sure. it's typically those people, you know, you don't, mm-hmm. don't go near those people. And our biggest awakening was it's not those people. It's just, we're all us. We're all in this together. Mm-hmm. And you take your clothes off for a living and you don't want to do that. No, we have yet to meet someone who wants to do that. <laughs> it's just that, you know, you're trying to put food on the table. And in the same way, you're amongst the people who, um, do the things that they do because that's just what they've been taught and what they've been raised. And, and at the end of the day, for us to be able to find a space for love for each of those people is such a beautiful thing. So um, what is it like having your family, having your children? How many kids do you have now? Two. Okay, you got two kids. You're living, you just said you're, you know, you're you're next door to sleeper cells or (laughs) suicide bombers and this, that, and the other. And here we live in Texas and we're told all the bombers are coming through the borders and things like that. Maybe we can get to that down the road a little bit, but what's it like being a parent knowing that something could happen? Well, I guess for some of us, um, we hadn't yet woken up to the fact in Texas or across the United States that 
we have been living next to the terrorists <laughs> of our own yes. making just the same. Yes. We've been living next to the shooter. We've been living next to the ideologue that will take a life, you know, mm -hmm. to hold up uh, his white supremacist ideology. So, uh, I mean, I, I know you guys get that, but in many ways, I kind of just want to turn the question back around and say, I don't know, guys, tell me, how does it feel to live next door to the terrorists? That is, because that, that is, I think it's so beautiful, man. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's, we're all, it's, we're all surrounded by it, but yet we think here in Texas, pretty land that, oh, well, they're not here, but boy, they're coming. It's, it, and it, yeah. it's not a, the, the wake up. I mean, we're asking this in terms like it's, just a person but what we're talking about as you stated jeremy is we're talking about dangerous and violent ideologies that affect mm. people the enemy are these concepts and these ideas of violence that we have ourselves like i have fostered i have grown in my own yeah totally heart garden you know and and they do come to bloom, and that is what we're harvesting. And and then we want to get mad at mass shootings, and then we want to blame, and and we we are dumbfounded by like where is it that this comes from? And we are failing all of. I mean, all of us really, in so many ways, just it's just so it's so hard to see ourselves clearly. And it's so hard to, um, yeah, take a take an inward inventory, I guess, of our own violent ideas. I don't know. Does that make sense? It makes sense. It's. I think it's totally accurate. It it chronicles the journey I've been on the last fifteen years uh, since setting out uh, to faithfully uphold the mission that I had inherited from the white male <laughs> Baptist teachers who had, who had come before me mm -hmm. and, and told me this is who we are and this is what we do. Um, uh, and in, in a very good faith effort to set out into the world and uphold those teachings and and whatnot, I I was transformed. Mm -hmm. it, the very act. So I guess this is this is the. I've got a new book coming out uh, yes. in late September, September twenty fourth, called Love Anyway, mm -hmm. and and a lot of the book chronicles this um, irony mm -hmm. or this sort of clashing of ideas that I set out in good faith to be a missionary, mm -hmm. which means I was told you need to leave home. Mm. So I raised my hand and I left home. But in the act of leaving home, in act of leaving the nest and leaving behind the safety of the fold, I, I became a bit exposed. I, I became vulnerable. Mm. And people aren't wrong when they warn you about the slippery slope. It's mm. just not necessarily true that the slippery slope leads you downward into ultimate demise you actually can slip ever yeah. <laughs> ever downward into a into a deeper truth into a deeper reality and a deeper way of seeing the world the slippery slope can actually slip you down into a depth <laughs> that you you might not have access to otherwise and i i came out of this deeper way sort of back up to the surface level so to speak as I would, as I would cross the world, getting on these airplanes, and I'd come back to the U.S. and I'd try to give my honest to God, faithful accounts of what we were seeing out here in the world, and our honest to God, good faith accounts were being rejected left and right. Mm. That's that's not true. That can't be right. That can't be how it is. Mm. And in my fragile ego, 20-something-year-old male state looking for approval and looking to belong and looking for some, you know, adult man to tell me that I'm, I'm doing it, I'm getting it, you know. I, I just had the hardest time grappling with the fact that you guys sent me out here to do this. <laughs> I, I'm doing what you told me to do, 
and I'm bringing you back an honest scouting report and you're rejecting it. What, what is going on here? Yes, I'm changing, but it's not because I'm an apostate. It's because <laughs> I'm actually faithfully upholding <laughs> the thing you told me to do. So it, it's that, th- that decade was very disorienting in many ways as I, as I reached and grasped for approval while trying to carry out the thing. But somehow the very act of carrying out the thing was probably guaranteed to change me and make me an alien outsider. I think so much of what you're saying echoes the prophetic words of Isaiah 58, where it's, this is the kind of fasting I've chosen. Go clothe the naked. Go bring food to the poor. Go provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And then your healing will appear. And I think Hmm. so much for me, that whole thing was backwards. I really thought I had to be good enough, perfect enough, have all of my apologetics and um, K. Arthur, like studies, (laughs) like I didn't know, like I had to know everything before I went. I Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that the covenant that God has with the poor and the command to live among is so that we will be healed. So all of us will be healed. It's not just so one-sided and savior, martyr, you know, complex and all that, I I think is what I unknowingly had, you know, fostered in my own heart. But Isaiah 58 disrupts all that. I just, I hadn't ever read it that way until the deconstruction began and I started to heal like strippers and women in the industry were showing me how to heal that they, mm-hmm. they were giving me balm and saying, Hey, they'd, they'd been hurt and kicked out a long time ago. They were way ahead of us. Yeah. On totally. a lot of this stuff. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, totally. They were like, you want to know what addiction looks like? You, you want to see your, you know, your own, um, people, you want to see your own family clearly come, come into the club and, and, and let's, you know, shoot the shit and talk about life. And, and it was like, as we were in it, everything else became so clear and our healing really became, oh man, so much more, um, like you're saying deep, it's almost like you get into this and you're like, is up down or is down up or, you know, like which, mm. which way is which. And, um, and I am just, I'm so grateful that as we go and as we love in the true, truest way, which all of us fumble, but the way of Christ, which is always going to be to love your neighbor wherever and whoever and however, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in that, there is so much healing and so much transformation. It's amazing. Were you going to say something, Brett? Hmm. I, um, I love your podcast. You have a podcast. Um, yes. Preemptive Love Podcast. Is that what it's called? No, it's called... What's your, what's your podcast called? It's called Love Anyway. That's it's, right. Yeah, love it's anyway. called Love Which Anyway. The and the, the, the whole... So, That's also the name of the new book, Preemptive Love. Uh, pre- sorry, Preemptive Love produces the podcast Love Anyway. The new book is called Love Anyway as well. Just type in love people and preemptive <laughs> and you'll, you'll find them. It's great. But I, So I, I'm, I'm intrigued. So episodes one and two are this fascinating journey of a situation you guys had a couple of years ago. And um, uh, one of your partners in crime who works for you guys and does a great job, J.R., um, and I sat down over barbecue at VTEX. And next time you're in town, I want you and I to go to VTEX <laughs> and have this same discussion. But since you're not here, let's have it here. Um, what was it like for you knowing that you have staffers out in the field who are about to encounter ISIS? What is that like? Oh, man, that was a, that was a terrifying night um, that had come on the heels of some already scary days on days on days. We were, um, essentially, we were the first into the combat zone of Fallujah when, when the military started taking the fight to ISIS to dislodge them from Fallujah. Fallujah, now through a couple cycles of war, has been one of the most notorious 
cities on the planet. You know, like the very word evokes shivers in, in the minds of a lot of Americans, at least. Mm -hmm. um, and and we had managed through you know a decade of building our reputation and relationship and whatnot to be first on the scene into the combat zone. So of all the international organizations in the world, of all the local organizations in the world, um, our, our little coalition had managed to be first on the scene. And for days and days and days on end, we were the only ones providing this life-saving aid inside the combat zone as people were running for their lives. People who had been under ISIS occupation for years mm. were now getting free street by street and, and making a run for it. And we would meet them with food and water and medicine. And uh, so there'd been some close calls. There had been some scary days already. And um, I, I cover this whole saga at length in the book. But, but ultimately, it comes down to this showdown mm. where our team ends up stranded out in the desert uh, locked out in the desert, literally. The, the cities go on lockdown, on curfew. We can't get back in. Um, I'm in a different location from, from the majority of our aid team at the, at the moment this is going down. And basically everyone who is locked out in the desert is thought to be ISIS. That's, that's what a curfew is for, is to kind of distinguish the good guys from the bad guys. And so our team ends up locked out in the desert providing humanitarian aid behind enemy lines in a place that, you know, generally people didn't think we were supposed to be or think we would be. And even though we'd gone through all the deconfliction protocols, somehow we still ended up locked out in the desert. <laughs> and as the Air Force looks on their black and white heat maps, you know, through their, their little screens, they see various signs that there's this whole convoy of ISIS making their way uh, through the desert and they start this this massive bombardment uh, against some hundreds and hundreds of ISIS trucks uh, careening across the desert. And, you know, basically our team gets caught up in that and it's a whole mm. crazy saga that played out over the course of, you know, 12 hours or something like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, trying to give comfort and leadership and problem solving mm. when your friends are, are, are right there, either getting bombed from the sky or trying to bury themselves in the sand to blend in and hope they don't get detected. Uh, it was a, mm. it, it all got very real, very fast. It was a, it was a very harrowing sort of thing. And I guess the, you know, the most beautiful part of it all is our team after that horrible night that made global news, could have said, that's it, we're done. We paid our dues, we showed up, we, mm -hmm. we tried to love in hard places, but, but instead they, uh, at, at no direction of my own, just of their own integrity and their own character, they got up the next morning and said, yeah, so <laughs> our plans yesterday got interrupted, <laughs> and uh, we've got a lot of f a lot of food that we weren't able to deliver to people in need. So they got back in the trucks. They drove back on the very same road that they had been bombed on and and encountered ISIS on, and they they got back to work. And they really we we have this phrase that we use love anyway mm -hmm. um, that has come to mean so much to us. And they they really put a, a team of Iraqis really put the the muscle behind that, and I think challenged all of our depth of con mm. commitment and our, our sense of connection to the idea and, and what it would mean if we, if we really believed it for all it's worth. So what book on leadership <laughs> equipped you to navigate <laughs> your team getting bombed <laughs> or potentially bombed? How, what, what'd, you, what'd you go for? Was it Lencioni or, you know, what, what'd, you, what'd you dig to deep for? That's the best question ever. <laughs> oh, man. Look, I, I, I went to business school <laughs> before starting a business, and I read all the leadership books before actually being a leader. And, uh, man, there's just... And I read some parenting books before being a parent, and I read all the missionary books before being a missionary. Like, there's, there's just nothing like being headstrong and head smart and having no experience to back it up, you know? Like... You, you know everything, and not only do you know it, but at least in my case, I had a, 
a great capacity to be self-righteous and judgmental and <laughs> condescending about it. So amazing. It, I, I will say this to our listeners: if you if you haven't heard the podcast yet, you've got to go listen to those episodes. I mean, they keep you on the edge of your your seat. Um, the way that you guys tell the story is just really beautiful. So kudos on your podcast and, and all that you're sharing in that. I've, I've so enjoyed it myself. So thanks. I think it's one of the earliest episodes and I believe on the podcast, it's called the longest night, maybe mm-hmm. one of the f- number one or number yeah. two episodes we've released. Yeah. And when you listen to your podcast, it, it also, it's almost like serial. It's like, it's very orchestral and it's got these like transitions that it really, really, um, I mean, you're telling a story and it's like a drama. I mean, really it's like, but it's real life. This isn't dramatized. No, this it like is, happened. <laughs> yeah. Mean, but you feel like you're there watching. You do. Really and cool. and I love the production of it as well. I think it it gives um just such a really just a depth to and an intensity. It does feel intense when you when you listen to it. You know, you gotta be ready for the intensity. Um Oh man, that's that's high praise. Our team does an incredible job with that, and you know, at at the core of everything we believe is really this idea or this question about the stories yes. we tell about each other, and and how the stories we tell pretty much determine everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we work really hard to be good storytellers because we think it we think it matters. Well, and you're holding you're holding stories, and this is what. This is what we we know that everywhere we're going, we're we're collectors. We're yeah, and it's like, how do I hold these stories in such an integrable way that gives glory to them? You know, um, stories that haven't been told, so my own story and the story of others, and how do those intersect? And yeah, story is really powerful, and your podcast does a great job. Um, okay. I want to go back real quick to something you said about Brett's question with all the books and all the things that we learn or don't learn a lot of ways. And the, the stuff then that we have to unlearn, it feels like we're living in a time where our hearts have atrophied. Um, I don't, I don't know any other way to put it. There's like, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of of information, but I feel like what preemptive love is after is, is you're, you're after the heart. Like you're asking, you're asking of us to really make what I say. I make, make a space for love. How do I make a space for love in my heart, in my body, in my head? Um, but, but our hearts feel very, atrophied maybe that's just in the U.S. you know here it it's like people are just throwing arguments at you and throwing opinions at you and yeah where's where's the disconnect it's like have we always been disconnected or um is that what you find in your audience as you're trying to teach and educate and um share the vision of preemptive love like what's the condition of our heart Hmm. I I became fascinated by this idea a few years ago that energy never really gets destroyed. It just it just changes forms. It mm. just moves from one thing to another. Um, physics, like physics, energy, mm-hmm. uh, and um. So, so I'm always looking for things that are in motion. Mm-hmm. I'm always looking for energy that can be transformed. And I've largely been able to stop looking at things in strictly black and white, single cause, single effect type dynamics. Mm. Um, so... So the atrophy metaphor does feel apt to me in many ways, um, but it also makes—I guess—it also makes me feel a little despondent. Mm-hmm. And 
when I, when I choose to see things through a lens of like energy, mm-hmm. I guess I, I take a little hope in that mm-hmm. because I see, I see something in motion. I see not something that's dead and decaying, which can be hard for me to imagine how do we bring back a dead and decaying heart. Mm. Um, but if I see fear mobilizing, then at least I'm able to look at that and go, oh, look at all that energy. Mm-hmm. Look at all that pent up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pent up power ready to do something. Imagine if it was transformed mm-hmm. from fear giving rise to, you know, um, hatred yes. because it, it's living out of this kind of scarcity mindset, this fear that there's not going to be enough to go around. And what if that same exact same amount of energy could be transformed into something positive? What if it was, what if it was now transformed into love and you saw that same velocity of, of energy and, and, and speed and, you know, force being applied for good. I don't know. I, that's, that's a bit of a stretch perhaps, Mm-mm. but, um, I guess, I guess there's just something about the, the dynamism of thinking for me in terms of energy and I, you know what it is, is it has, it's gotten me out of the mode that I articulated earlier where I think about destroying things. Because mm. if, if, if you accept that principle of physics, you can't destroy energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and every action has an equal mm-hmm. reaction. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's part of what I missed in those early years of life when I set out with all that angst and all that oppositional energy. I, I thought I could just destroy something. And I didn't realize that we can't bomb our way to peace because every bomb we drop, whether it's verbal or theological or, or an actual you know, incendiary device, uh, it, it creates a, a blowback mm. effect. And I want to be in the business of transforming energy mm. and I want to get out of the business of trying to destroy people and ideas yeah. and communities, you know? That's good. That's so good. I have a, a kind of a two-parter for you here. Um, <laughs> what would 20-something Jeremy Courtney say about Jeremy Courtney today? Woo! <laughs> Um, I, yeah, 20 something Jeremy Courtney would say that this guy is a sellout, um, spineless, Mm. you know, sort of refusal to stand up for the truth and therefore will fall for anything. Um, doesn't, doesn't really know the true meaning of love, Mm. uh, because love has to ultimately um, love has to ultimately be aligned to what that guy thought mm-hmm. God Jesus in the Bible meant mm-hmm. according to that guy's 20 year old perspective you know um, yeah so I, the, Jer- that that Jeremy at 20 something would not hold me as I am today in very high esteem, for sure. Which my follow-up would then be, what would today's Jeremy say to the 20-something Jeremy? Let me, let me try and answer it in two parts. If you, if you were to back, backtrack a few years, maybe three, five, seven years, as I started to measurably and meaningfully change on some of these counts. Um, That Jeremy of three to five years ago, let's say, would have been pretty, would would have been equally disdainful Mm -hmm. and dismissive of 20-year-old Jeremy. Like the move from a relative conservatism to a relative progressivism or liberalism felt like such an awakening, like such a new lease on life, like such a new way to see the world that the only way I knew how to process it was to be really dismissive and disdainful of mm. the guy I had been. Mm. Why, why, so, why so conservative? Why so angry? Why so 
close-fisted with people. Like, look at all the liberty there is out here. Look at, look at how big we can open up the table and welcome other people in. Like, why you got to be so rude, man? <laughs> um, really, so, so in many ways, it was a move from disdain of liberalism to a move into a disdain for conservatism. Mm -hmm. What the last five years or so have been about in this ISIS era, showing up on the front lines of conflict, getting shot at, bombs falling, finding a, a wider space in my heart altogether for all kinds of people, has me in a place now where I can look back at both of those guys and go, I'm really grateful for you guys. <laughs> I, I love you both. Um, if it, if it weren't for conservative, that, that particular version of conservative Jeremy, so scared and insecure and angry and angsty and, you know, ready to charge the gates of hell with a lot of water pistol, so to speak, and, you know, change the world. If it, if it hadn't been for that guy, I would have never got here. Mm -hmm. I would have never left home. Mm -hmm. I would have never ventured out into the world. I, I wouldn't have changed. And, and so I honor that guy, that, mm. that guy carried me on his back or he carried me in his stomach or, you know, mm. somehow that guy gave birth to who I am today. So there's no use berating that guy or thinking ill of that guy. I, I don't think less of my son when mm -hmm. he was a baby or my son when he was four mm -hmm. or my son when he was eight. I, I love every stage of who he's been and how he's growing and and I I now see myself through similar eyes and I now see my friends through through similar eyes wherever wherever we are on that developmental journey I think it all belongs yes. and I, I don't think we need to tear each other apart as we grow and mature mm -hmm. I absolutely love that man I mean I so feel that 20 something bread is really different than 43 year old bread <laughs> I think as I as I just listen to you talk and even bringing up that part about you know you don't you don't think of your three month old son different than you think of your son now, um, it's amazing how our friends get so disappointed in who we've become versus mm. who we used to be and you know I mean I I've had people that they don't that they don't want to be friends anymore because I'm not conservative you know, Republican, this, that, or the other Brett, like I used to be. And it's like, why can't we appreciate both? I mean, it, it, life is about growth. It's about moving forward and progressing forward. If we're the same as we were 20 years ago, man, that's not much life. Um, and so I just appreciate you saying we've got to celebrate our person of old because that person is who has brought us to our person of today. And I think, it, I do, I agree, man. I think it's important to celebrate that and to bless that and to go, yeah, angry Brett was necessary to get <laughs> soft Brett here today. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I look back on it now like I was, uh, and, and, and like, through a lens of like sparring. I, I needed sparring partners to help make me strong enough to be who I am. So I was, I was constantly throwing punches. Sometimes I was full on fighting, but I think at the essence, I was trying to, I was trying to get strong. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that, that required a certain kind of tenacity. It required a certain kind of front. It required mm. a certain kind of posture. The, but the goal was to somehow figure out who I am, mm -hmm. what I can take, what I can't take. Um, what does it feel like to land a punch? What does it feel like to get a punch landed on you? And, and God bless the people in my life who stuck around and played that role so well mm -hmm. as, as sparring partners. Um, sometimes their punches landed and I took them so personally, like, like it was a personal affront or an offense. Mm. And I don't think they all, I don't think they were necessarily fighting. Maybe I was fighting at mm. times. I think some of them were just sparring. They were just trying to help me get strong. 
But as, as I was establishing myself and figuring myself out, I, I took so much of that through a lens. I took the pain and the bloody nose and the black eye through a lens of like really deep personal injury. And it, it took some years to, to figure out how to release some of that stuff and get over it. Mm. Well, I, I, in the efforts of being full disclosure, I think I have to admit <laughs> to being one of those sparring partners for you. And, you know, honestly, at times it was not pure motive. It wasn't to make you better. It was, yeah. it was honestly to make me better and to make you learn something. And that's a real asshole. For sure. That's a real asshole move that, you know, looking back, you can see that. You don't see it in the moment. But, but I agree. I mean, yep. we were just, that's how we were wired up. And honestly, I think that's how we were wired up in the spiritual culture you and I were raised in. And it, it, yep. we cloaked it and we used words like accountability. You know what? Accountability totally. has harmed a lot of people. If we're just going to be really honest, um, because what that's become is power trip. I'm over you. I have something you don't have. You mess up. I call you out. And while we say it was from a space of love, it wasn't from a place of love. It was from a place of power. And I think Jesus is, I think he doesn't like that. That's not how he <laughs> operated. And man, I, I just, I find myself even now at 43, just unwinding so much of the spiritual mm -hmm. crap that was quote, quote, invested into us. That was not Jesus. It was just American Southern evangelical way of life. So, well, I'm in recovery, brother. And so have and you... I, <laughs> Go ahead. I was gonna say so. No, go ahead. It's okay. I was gonna say so. So your wives have also been in recovery as we've stuck alongside the growth and the change and watched these really tenacious, strong, um, visionary men give birth to their whole being. I mean, I th I think that's been the beauty of marriage and sticking it out. And I know mm. you and Jess being on the front lines, it's real. You're, you are unmaking violence in your own heart, in your own marriage, in your own family and mm. in the world, you know, together. And, and that's just been beautiful to watch. Well, that means the world to me to hear and let's not gloss over the part, the clause you said about unmaking violence in our own hearts and in our own homes, because mm a lot of this did result in a kind of, in our case, not physical, mm. but still, I think, a, a, kind of, a kind of power over violent dynamic mm. um, where women had a certain place and yeah. men had a certain place, and that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't write the rules, but you can be sure I'm going to you know, take advantage of them or <laughs> enforce them or point to them on the wall when it suits me. And... So I think that uh, that dynamic of uh, of as Brett said, unwinding the violence that gets so wound up, you know, in some of this as we as we develop and as we're indoctrinated and as we come to belong mm. to a certain tribe, uh, yeah, it, our work would be severely hampered or or at least would lack integrity if it hadn't also involved the kind of unmaking unmaking violence in in the home as well mm -hmm. and to be to be clear I was the perpetrator of that mm -hmm. not not her you know mm -hmm. yeah I mean and again I I look at the roots of where we were planted and the soil in which we all grew up in, and it has been a long journey for me to find my voice, for me to, you know, and I was fighting in a different way um, and in unhealthy ways for that voice. Um, and I, I think there's just so much to be said for really, really making giving ourselves like when you said you look back at that 20 year old boy I mean I I really if I was just getting tears in my eyes thinking man 
like the blessing and honor that we can bestow on those former selves, like that is so rich and so powerful because if I can bestow blessing on who I was, if I can really start to see myself clearly and in that clarity, give, give grace, like I'm not glossing over the fact that there was so much that I did that was a trauma response and that was violent and, and, you know, um, yeah, emasculating even, um, there was so much of that in my own working out. If I can look back at her and say, you know, you can rest, like you are loved, you belong, Mm. you don't, you don't have to fight for a place anymore. You've, you've been at the table the whole time. Like here we are together, Mm. you know, time to wake up and, and embrace all this beauty and goodness and unleash light in the world, if I can give her that grace, I have so much more space for love for my partner who has also is going through all of us going through Mm. this. Um, yeah, this change, you know? Um, and it is, and we're still changing, right? Like it's not like we've arrived. (laughs) We have, and, and this stuff is scary because it, I don't take it for granted that Jess and I have, been through some, you know, intense trauma on this side of the world, which has catalyzed various forms of change, Mm. seasons of defense, mechanisms, you know, taking precedent and maybe stalling growth. But the fact that we have in general managed to change on the same trajectory at, at the same basic timeline, going in the same direction and ending up at this snapshot in more or less, uh, you know, a very similar place. And, and having moved a significant distance, you might say, off what was our, our plumb line 18 years ago when we got married, like that's, that's, that's no small <laughs> thing. And I don't, we, we've definitely seen people break up and mm-hmm. get divorced and not, not be able to stick together through what you might call less or over what you might call less, lesser, lesser fights, lesser issues. And I don't know how to orchestrate it. I don't know Mm -hmm. how to prescribe it. I don't know how to help others do the same, but I I sure wish I could because it's, uh, it's, it's a gift Mm. because this has felt so lonely and scary at times to move off, off the plumb line, off the center, to leave home, to leave the norm and, and to have each other, I think, still be there for each other mm-hmm. through such dramatic change is, it just feels like a great grace. It is. It is. So what do you guys do? Because this is a question we get asked a lot. I'm sure people ask you and Jess a lot too, but I mean, what do you do for fun? What do you do to enjoy, to offload all the traumatic things that you're seeing in the world that you're thinking about. I mean, even if you aren't on the front battle lines all the time, just the content of what our brains and hearts have to wrestle with, like the news of all the things, I mean, it's, it can be traumatic just even in that headspace. So what do you guys, what do you do to offload? What do you do for fun? How do you connect with one another um, or your family, your kids? Like, where do you find joy? I wouldn't say, I don't think either of us would say that we have super hard boundaries or lines between what we call work and what we call fun and what we call family and what we call work. But um, we we definitely find ourselves at different times needing different things. We find work really fun. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes, (laughs) uh, sometimes building the thing that you're trying to build together and bring things to the fore, whether it's ideas or products or, you know, whether you're moving pixels around and trying to create something digitally for people to consume or, you know, whether it's a storytelling type asset like a podcast Mm. or I'm writing a book, like sometimes that stuff all, it's work, but it's also deeply enriching and and really fun. Sometimes it uh, leaves us feeling exhausted Mm -hmm. and the, the fun can be hard to eke out a little bit more when it hits 11 o'clock at night mm-hmm. or whatever. But, um, you know, in those moments, we're like anyone else. We, we scroll through our Instagram feeds <laughs> and we 
binge watch Netflix mm -hmm. and um, we've we've kind of rediscovered a lake nearby mm. in the last uh, six months or so and so we bought up and brought over from the United States some really high quality inflatable paddle boards and we go out to the lake and paddleboard like as if we were in Oregon or something <laughs> so that's been uh, that's been pretty cool um, we love to travel we love food I mean you know at the end of the day we're people like anyone yeah. else and we like we like pretty much all the same things anyone else does. Yeah. Well, man, um, this has been a delight to spend some time with you. And um, I mean, we're so excited about your new book. Yes. It's coming out. Remind us again when it comes out. September 24th. Please get it now if you can. Uh, Love Anyway, an invitation beyond a world that's scary as hell. Tells a lot of these stories in much greater depth and kind of peels back the curtain on you know, some of what was going on that comprises all this, all this change that we've been talking about and hopefully starts to prescribe or, or at least describe a, a way that we can heal mm. all that's tearing us apart in the United States right now, uh, across Europe. Mm -hmm. I, I think these, these things we've been touching on about our religious identities or political identities or racial injustice, um, if, if all we're doing is ping-ponging back and forth between conservative and progressive, we're going to flatten each other. Yeah, for sure. But if we, can, if, we, if we can transcend that in some ways, if we can rise above it and learn to include both of it, where we're blessing both sides, blessing both stages of, of that personal development and civilizational development, um, without blessing every single heinous crime or act or abuse that, that might take place under those systems or under those auspices, uh, I think we can heal what's tearing us apart. I think we can press in and commit to love anyway and, and find a way through this. So I hope the book inspires people to do that. That's why I wrote it, not to tell a story about Iraq, but really to give people a lens through which to understand their own story on mm. the front lines where you live. Oh, that's good. And will there be a book tour? Yes, so we are going on the Love Anyway tour most of the fall. So from September 25th or so, we start in the Northeast and start working our way across the country, going all the way into the holidays. So uh, loveanyway.com slash tour will have those dates up soon if they're not up already, uh, but we'll be... We'll be more or less covering the U.S. Are you coming to Waco? 40, 40, <laughs> 40 or 50 dates. Yeah, I think we got 40 or 50 dates on the map. It's mostly going to be like small parlor, house show, salon style events so that we can be in you know close spaces with one another and, and talk about the things that are tearing us apart and how we, how we bring ourselves back together. And yes, we do have a stop in Waco. Yay! Very good. Well, that'll be fantastic. We have a new bookstore in town, so that'll <laughs> be nice as well. Um, we're, I guess got to say this. This is going to sound dumb, but I'm so proud of you. And I'm so proud of the work that you are doing, that you have done. And I hugged your neck back at the IJM conference last fall, and I still feel that hug because I'm just, I'm, I'm just inspired by you and by your work and by your walk. So... Mm. Thanks for letting us peer into that and um, learn a little bit today from you. Well, thank you. And it doesn't sound dumb as someone who was always a few steps out ahead of me on some of this stuff as one of those sparring partners <laughs> to hear someone who once landed blows to the face say they're proud of you means a lot <laughs> and helps in, in, in the healing that we're all reaching for. So proud of you guys. It's been beautiful to watch what you've built as well and really honored to be in this with you. Well, tell Jess we said hello. And, and happy birthday. Oh, and happy birthday. Hey, I will. Thank and you. And blessings on Sisterhood Soaps. If you don't know, Preemptive Love has a lot going on. You can go to their website, but they also have a social enterprise where they're helping refugee women, um, you know, create jobs and sustainable incomes for themselves. And Sisterhood Soaps is one of the ways that you can be a partner in love and justice um, for them. So, Check out Preemptive Love and check out Sisterhood Soaps as well. All right. Thank you, Jeremy. We'll see you sometime soon Thank on this side. All right. Bye. On the road. All right. You guys. Let's do Bye -bye. it. Man, that was great. I love that guy. I do want to clarify one thing. 
Um, and it's the part where I was talking about accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think accountability is bad. I think when it's been used as a, as just a power trip for some people that it's been harmful. Yeah. So I just wanted to clarify that in case you're thinking Brett doesn't like accountability. No, Brett <laughs> likes accountability when it's done properly and um, rightly. Well, so yeah, and I think that all of us are learning and unlearning and learning and unlearning, and that's yeah. what this conversation kind of just gave a voice to. And I love Jeremy's perspective of blessing and honoring where we come from. Totally. And, and there is so much good and gold in our upbringings, no matter um, some of the harmful and hurtful parts can actually be turned to good and um, we can bless those parts as we move on and release and forgive and grow. And so it was, it was really, really, I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. Totally. Please leave us some feedback and some stars and let us know what you think. And um, please go get Jeremy's book. Yes. You can find it on Amazon or anywhere, anywhere they sell books. He's kind of becoming big time now, so you can get that there. So, It's been fun, Em. It's been great. Hey. We'll talk to you guys soon. Just remember to share the love. We're not supposed to say that. It says it in the outro. I thought this was the outro. No, no, no. This this was a clarifying bit. Hey, thanks for joining the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to awaken hope and empower change with us. We want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review Yes, because your voice matters. It's how we get this message into the world. And lastly, be sure to follow Jesus Said Love on Instagram and Facebook for up-to-date info and visit the website at jesussaidlove.com for how you can join the JSL fam. Until next time. Share the love.